everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm super excited to welcome Dr. Mike Pekarski onto the podcast today. Dr. Pekarski and I are going to be discussing injuries and rehab and PT considerations in combat athletes and combat sports, including jiu-jitsu and striking sports and so much more. Dr. Pekarski is an expert when it comes to this stuff, and I highly encourage you to check him out on Instagram and online as well. Enjoy this episode. Mike, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today, man. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I got to say, you're probably the most kick-ass guest I've ever had on the podcast. <laughs> you, you probably saw that one coming. Good to hear. Good to hear. So for people who aren't familiar with you, or maybe they haven't seen you on social media or anything like that, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are? And Sure. Uh, so my name is Dr. Mike Bukarski. I'm a doctor of physical therapy. Um, I'm a board certified orthopedic clinical specialist. I'm also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and I used to fight mixed martial arts. So a lot of people find my content. You know, I, I use my Instagram more as like a blog about discussing how rehabilitation connects with, uh, you know, martial arts of, of various uh, degrees. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's interesting. And I love how you kind of blend the background of professional fighting experience and having a black belt with uh, everyday clinical practice. And it seems like you focus a lot on the combat athlete and martial arts based athletes and the treatment and management of their conditions. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with the term like combat athlete, what does that mean to you? Like, where does your head go when you think combat athlete? So in general, combat athletes going to be anyone who does like some type of competitive martial arts. So like, you know, like we, we say athlete because like they're doing some type of competition. Now we could break this down to like a striking martial art, like boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai. This could be like a grappling martial art, like wrestling, judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, or it could be mixed, which is mixed martial arts. That's kind of why I call it mixed martial arts. Uh, but like a lot of times too, like I, you know, I would say combat athlete is, would be any of those athletes, but you could also even broaden it and like any type of tactical athlete, if you want to include like military, because military is going to have kind of similar-ish demands. So, you know, it obviously depends on who you want to work with. Yeah, definitely. And I like how you kind of split that up into a few different categories, striking, grappling, and then military. So yeah. Kind of looking at those three categories for a second here, they're all kind of unique in what they demand. And then mixed martial arts would obviously demand something from all of them. Um, from your standpoint, as you're looking at the movements and just the considerations of these athletes, what kind of demands are you thinking about as a physical therapist that go into the nature of these sports? What kind of things are you considering? So we can look at, uh, stri we'll start with striking. So striking is going to generally be more explosive because you have to explode into stuff. And I don't think people have a good understanding of the biomechanics of like throwing a punch or a kick, but essentially it's a full body movement. So generally you're, you're going to generate your force from the ground. You're going to push off from there. The energy is going to transfer to your trunk. Your spine has to essentially contain that so it can transfer it to the upper limb. Or even if you kick, generally you're going to push off the foot so your other foot can kick. So it's, it's generally a full body movement. It's going to be explosive. Um, and then various martial arts, like the competitions have different round base. So like kickboxing tends to be like three, three minute rounds, Muay Thai is five, five minute rounds. And then boxing can be anywhere between 
like four and 12 three-minute rounds. So based on the sport, there'll be different uh, aerobic capacity demand that you're going to need. Um, then we look at, uh, at grappling. So with grappling, there's going to be more of an isometric demand because whether you're doing wrestling, judo, or Brazilian jiu-jitsu, there's going to be some level of pinning, right? So you have like two people that are physically contesting themselves. So there's like a, a concept that you'll hear in jiu-jitsu called match strength. So there, there, there'll be these athletes that they, they really can't lift a lot of weight, but you get them on the mat and they're like, holy cow, this guy is really, really strong. And, and essentially it's a that isometric demand. So the ability to, you know, uh, pin someone, which based on where you are, if you pin someone, you're on top, you're going to have some level of like leverage and, and gravity on your side, but you have to understand the technique. Um, I would say those are like some of the, the two easy ways to break it apart from striking and grappling. Yeah, I like that. And I really like how you brought up the fact that striking is a full body type demand. I think a lot of people think of throwing a punch and they just instantly go to serratus anterior because we call it the boxer's muscle. But then you watch it and it's like, well, actually the hips are rotating and we're generating power from our legs and our fist is just the thing that's ultimately delivering that. So I'd imagine from your standpoint, maybe you're wanting to work with someone on more of a performance element you'd probably spend a lot of time on that lumbo-pelvic hip dissociation, we can call it, um, and the ability to generate power from the hip and transmit it throughout the upper extremity. Yeah. I mean, it's probably going to be pretty similar to like any type of throwing athlete or hitting athlete. But, uh, you know, it was actually an interesting thing you could add to that. So there was a, an art, uh, a study by Stu McGill. So Stu McGill is a pretty famous Canadian bio uh, spine mechanist. But, and he was doing some work with some actually he was working with GSP, but he's working with different mixed martial arts. What they found was that like to generate force, essentially there's there's something called a double pulse. So it's the idea of what you do is you you do like a very quick contraction to like initiate the force, but then you want to stay as loose as possible until impact. Right. And, and you know, I'm sure if people like throw, like you don't want to be like stiff during the whole motion because you're gonna be slow. So the idea is you want to like initiate the movement be as loose as possible and then stiffen again on impact to get that maximum speed and force. So it's kind of interesting in that sense too. Yeah, definitely. So almost like a quick contraction of the core musculature, right? The obliques transversus followed by just being really loose and just kind of chilled out, I guess you could say to deliver the force. Um, exactly. And I would imagine that would probably be true in other senses of martial arts, whether you have to dodge quickly or you have to kind of avoid something, you probably want that quick contraction followed by a lot of just chill, relaxation kind of effect in the muscles, for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like people don't realize because they think like when when you, like someone's punching you in the face, it's kind of, kind of stressful. So people tighten up, but you actually want to be as loose as possible because you can react much, much quicker. Now, I know you mentioned you have a background in martial arts and, you know, for PTs or other healthcare providers listening, I think a lot of people see their own day as being very stressful and they're tense a lot. How do you stay lax, I'll say, or just loose when you're literally about to get punched by someone? Like what goes through your head? How do you keep that kind of state of relaxation when you're like in a ring with someone? Uh, I guess it just comes to training. Like you just do it in training. It's just a great exposure to activity. So generally like things are different now. Like back in the day, if you go to a boxing gym, they would just like throw you in, you'd get beat up. But uh, nowadays, like 
businesses are a little bit smarter about student <laughs> retention. So, you know, it's like a great exposure. Like first you do technique, then you do some level of live training. When striking's involved, you know, there might be like light sparring. And then, you know, there's like a, a trend where hard sparring is starting to become less commonly used. So like when mixed martial arts came back in, there was, there was less awareness on like head trauma and that sort of stuff. So like people used to literally just um, like, they would just be like fighting in the gym and then like people get knocked out in training. But now with all this attention on like head trauma and like CTE, they're like, well, you don't really get paid to fight in the gym. So you need to prepare yourself as optimally as possible. But taking unnecessary head trauma is not good for your career. So now a lot of athletes are doing far less hard sparring. It depends on the coach and the camp and their philosophy, but it's becoming much less common. As you were talking, you mentioned preparation is a huge key. And I think that's an area that, you know, PT, strength coaches, clinicians, whatever you, whatever term you want to throw out there, I can really shine in. Now, you mentioned something like CTE. Has there been anything in your experience that you've um, worked with individuals on? Maybe they've gotten like head trauma or concussion from uh, martial arts, which I would believe is slightly common. Is there anything that you work on from a preventative standpoint to help prevent that from happening again? Anything like neck strengthening or anything like that? So we can look at concussions and then CTE. So just because there's a lot of information on CTE. Yep. CTE to be formally diagnosed, the person has to be an autopsy, so they have to be dead. Like you, So when people say they have CTE and they're alive, like they, they're just guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is some stuff that like, so now there's like a, like a newer concept where they're like trying to define like symptom-based that is related with CTE. But what people found was the development of CTE a lot of times is just, as you'd make sense, higher exposure to repetitive head trauma. So like generally, if you start at a younger age, you have a longer career, you have a lot of knockouts. These athletes are more likely to get developments of CT. But like when I say like a lot of like, we're looking at like over 20 fights, careers over 10 years. So it's not like you have like one fight and you're going to, I mean, theoretically you could have one fight and brain trauma, but for the most part, that CTE is that that long span duration of, of head trauma. And again, like a lot of these athletes was a lot of the research is athletes from back in the day. So because hard sparring was more of an issue, uh, I'm imagining now if if people do light, lighter sparring, they might be able to enhance their career longer or have less potential downsides from a, a combat sports career. Uh, for concussions, so there is some research on ways to prevent concussions. There's essentially three that seem promising. So there's vision training, reaction training, and neck strengthening. So vision training is kind of makes sense, right? Like, can you see the punch? So it's common in boxing to say the one that knocks you out is the one you don't see coming, right? So obviously people are throwing a punch, you're covering up, you don't see that punch, you can't brace properly, right? So you have to see the strike. Once you identify the strike that's happening, you have to be able to brace appropriately. So if you can't actually like respond to tighten, it doesn't matter how strong your neck is. So that third component would be neck strength, which is you see the strike, you could brace. Now can your neck absorb the stress to minimize the risk of concussion? So one on its own is, is less 
effective, but like all three seem to have some type of preventative thing, at least uh, with some of the current research. You know, a lot of times people will say neck strength is good to re reduce concussions. But again, if you can't see it, you can't brace. It really doesn't matter how strong your neck is. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And that makes a lot of sense because as you mentioned before about the ability to throw a punch and having a quick co-contract or a quick contraction of muscles, if you don't have that to prepare for a punch coming in, then as you just mentioned, you're going to take all of that force. Um, yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. And I like how you broke it up into a vision reaction and neck strengthening approach because you have to see it, you have to react to it, and then you have to be strong enough to absorb it. Outside of the realm of concussions and head injuries, which I think most people typically associate with sports such as boxing or martial arts or something like a football or rugby, are there any other like injuries or anything along those lines that you typically see in martial arts athletes? Anything common that way? So with striking, obviously with head trauma goes like face trauma, whether it's like damage to the eye, broken bones, hand or foot trauma. So again, like people don't realize that gloves aren't necessarily meant for safety for your opponent. They're meant for you. Like, so a lot of people break their hands. That's why bare knuckle boxing was a big thing with the UFC where they transitioned to four ounce gloves. It allowed the athletes to hit harder without risking broken bones people still break their hands even with a boxing glove which is can be like eight ounces eight to ten ounces but uh yeah so we're looking at foot foot trauma from impact hand trauma um you're going to tend to get more uh orthopedic like knee injuries from like grappling so in like wrestling judo uh people going for takedowns, positional scrambles, that's where you're going to get more of those ACL, LCL, MCL injuries where there's like some competitive people who are, you know, jockeying for position. And that's where those knee injuries are going to happen. So currently knee injuries are going to be the most common for grappling. Uh, pretty much across the board of uh, judo, wrestling, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. In judo, you're going to get a little bit more shoulder injuries because in judo, you don't actually want to fall correctly because if you fall correctly, you get epond. If your back goes on the mat, you lose the match. So if you're a jiu-jitsu or if you're a judo athlete, you, if you fall wrong, like you fall, you don't get epond. So the idea is like, again, people try to fall wrong so they don't lose the match. So they're going to have a little bit more shoulder injuries, like AC injuries, potentially basically out. You're not going to see basically out like elbow injuries as much, but AC injuries, AC injuries for sure. In grappling, you're going to see a lot of rib, in, rib injuries. Now, what's interesting with rib injuries is I've seen a few in my career, but I don't see as many as I would have guessed based on what the literature says is common. So rib injuries are pretty common for grappling because people are in those isometric holds and they're twisting. And as they twist, you know, they might have like some type of costochondral separation or something like that. Interesting, interesting. And I didn't even think about the face trauma and the amount of facial injuries that could come from, you know, getting punched in the face. I don't know why I didn't go there mentally. Um, but from a PT side, obviously, you know, you go through school, you learn about the different facial muscles and what they do. Is there a role for PT in rehabbing all of this sort of thing? Or is this more of like a cosmetic plastics, uh, plastics uh, sort of thing? Well, I mean, I'm sure that there's there's some level of manual therapy that can be used on like scar tissue. So 
as people get cut, they're going to have face trauma. Face trauma could be scars. Scar tissue we know is aberrant weak tissue. So a lot of times that when people have scars it, like over their eyes, it's easy for them to get cut. And if you get cut, a lot of times they'll stop the fight. So I haven't done a lot of research on this, but like I do think that there would be some value of doing like manual therapy of scar mobilizations to minimize the risk of retears. We could think like uh, TMD, tem uh, you know, TMJ issues. So you get hit in the jaw, your jaw is going to hurt. People don't even realize that you get physical therapy for that. Uh, the amount of different TMJ disorders too is pretty interesting because the temporomandibular joint, we'll call it, um, has a very unique biconcave disc within it. And that disc can become a source of uh, issue for a lot of people. Some people might require internal mobilizations, which are all the um, all the joy to do, I'll say. Um, and I've also seen some weird jaw exercises done, usually with like a sterile object where you're biting down on it and moving and different things like that. Um, have you had to perform a lot of TMJ type rehab? Um, I don't see a ton of it myself, I'll admit. Uh, I haven't seen, like I've done it like a handful of times, but not a ton. Like most things, like one, I think TM, TMD issues tends to be a little bit more focused. Like generally people who do that, like that's what they do. Like that's all they see. Um, a lot of times people don't realize that's something that they can go to physical therapy for. And then honestly, a lot of combat athletes are pretty cheap. And even like, honestly, even like a lot of the professional athletes don't even have health insurance. So uh, that is not necessarily something that they're going to jump to do because they don't even, they, they just don't have the, the care necessarily to address it. Interesting. I didn't realize that was a common issue in the um, professional fighting world, we'll call it. Um, going back to the knee injury or going back to the different types of injuries there, you mentioned hands as well, and that being a very common one, such as broken bones in the hands. Have you had any, I'll, I'll call them unique clinical presentations of broken bones in the hands or anything of that sort? No, not really. I've been kind of lucky. Um, any hand issues that they've had just tended to be fairly simple. Um, you know, it, it, it could be like they broke their hand. And now it's just now that their hand is healed. Now you just restore function of the hand. So I haven't had any interesting cases. Probably the most interesting would be like wrist issues. Cause I feel like wrist issues tend to be a little bit more tricky to address. Like someone who has some type, some type of a scaphoid lunate tear or like, I haven't had people who've had like a full scaphoid fracture, but like that sort of thing. I feel like people who have like wrist issues just tend to, their response to rehab tends to be a little bit slower. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. And you mentioned a scaphoid lunate uh, complex there. I believe it's the scaphoid bone that has a very unique vascular supply to it itself. So if that was fractured, I believe it heals distal to proximal instead of proximal to distal. So that would probably make for a interesting approach to rehab, I think. Yeah. I mean, the big problem is, is identify it. Cause a lot of times people don't realize, I don't think the scaphoid fracture shows up initially on x-ray. And then obviously if it doesn't heal properly, now we're dealing with a, a vascular necrosis and the bone dies and to get surgery for that's pretty terrible. Cause they just take out like the carpal row and now you just lost half your motion, your wrist. So Thankfully, I haven't had to deal with any of that. Knock on wood. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, and you also mentioned injuries to the foot and foot trauma. Are there is that more of a fracture kind of case as well, or is that tend to be more of a ankle sprain type thing from falling wrong? Or uh, well, so so here's the thing. So if so, it depends on the different martial arts. So some martial arts like Muay Thai kickboxing, they teach to kick with the shin because you actually the the, the shin's a, a thick bone. Other more traditional martial arts like various karate and taekwondo, they teach to kick with the instep. And it also could be that a lot of these traditional martial arts like uh, taekwondo and karate, some of those competitions are more point-based, which means that you just have to make contact. You don't have to do damage. First, Muay Thai kickboxing, like you're trying to disable your opponent. So you have to develop a lot of impact. That being said, like those sports back in the day are less common. So it's 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 more common for like a a Taekwondo or karate athlete to, to transition to kickboxing. So some of those athletes still have that, I'm still going to kick with my foot. Those athletes, again, we're worried about potentially kicking, having like fractures with their bone, especially if, they, if their foot impacts the opponent's shin. That's a big problem. You're starting to see slightly more uh, shin fractures that are happening like what happened to Conor McGregor um it's not super common it's just becoming more common like you know I I think the last three years I've seen like four or five but before that I've seen like one Hmm. any idea why that's becoming more common or not not really sure uh so it could be that like if you're a mixed martial art fighter like you have to do like boxing kickboxing wrestling jujitsu strength and conditioning there's just not, not a lot of time so I think a lot of these athletes might not be conditioning their shins properly. So like in Muay Thai, like all you do is kick. So you just kick a heavy bag for like hours at a time, which is going to start to harden the bone and create callus so that your shin becomes ready to deal with that impact. It also could be the stance. So in, um, in Muay Thai, because people kick a lot, they're very good at blocking kicks. So if you try to throw like a calf kick, which is becoming more common, a Muay Thai fighter is going to be able to check it really easy so you can hurt your own foot. In mixed martial arts, because you have to worry about the takedown, sometimes people are going to have wider stance. That wider stance is a little bit harder to check. So some athletes just don't like, like Nate Diaz, famous fighter, he never checks a kick. He just eats them. So like, you know, like you're like, well, I could throw like not great kicks and I don't have to worry about the repercussions. Sometimes it's also the setup, like typically when you strike, you want to set your kick up. If, if, if like we were, we were fighting, I just throw a kick. You're going to see it coming. You could block. So normally we would throw like a punch. So you deflect the punch and followed by the punch is the kick. So it's like block and now you're getting kicked. So it also could be just lack of a setup. Yeah, that's interesting. And that goes back to what you mentioned before about vision and reaction. Now I know that was in context to a head injury or a concussion, but I can also see where that would come into play with something like a shin injury, kind of like we're discussing now. Like a, a famous case of that was like when Chris Weidman fought Uriah Hall. So like the, the fight start and, and you know, Chris Weidman's like out of, he's like a little bit too far out and he just throws a big telegraph kick and Uriah Hall just checks it and Chris, Chris Weidman broke his shin. So, you know, it's, I, I think that setup is, is an important aspect too. Do you ever see any kind of repetitive stress or stress fracture type things from Muay Thai or any kind of repetitive overuse type thing like that? 
Uh, you do. Uh, I don't necessarily. Literature does kind of support that. Like you are going to see, like you know, potentially some some issues on the bone. I see it a little bit more common with like the recreational jujitsu athlete, like jujitsu or judo athlete that do a lot of gripping. They tend to get a lot of like forearm tendinopathy just because so much of the sport, especially wearing a gi, which is like that 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 kimono. So much of, of that is getting a good grip and you don't want to let it go because if you let it go, you lose your control. So they're just holding the 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 gi the, the entire match. And that doesn't even count. Then they're, they're, they're throwing some like resistance training. So they're doing like heavy barbell training. So high volume of gripping from sport and strength and conditioning. A lot of them tend to overuse their, you know, their the tendons in their, in their forearms. That would probably become a very tricky one to rehab there because there's so many different muscles in our forearm wrist hand kind of area and as a result it's kind of hard to target specific things i will say because a lot of them do wrist flexion a lot of them do wrist extension and it's not just challenging to rehab in the short term but i would say the long term too because i'd imagine no rehab process for a martial arts athlete on a return to sports side ever goes as you textbook plan it (laughs) that's true for sure so walk me through that return to sports side a little bit here, Mike, because I like working with athletes, but I've never worked with martial arts athletes myself. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who are thinking the same thing. So if you had to consider return to sport for a martial arts athlete, whether it's for a foot or a hand or some other type of injury, shoulder, you threw out knee earlier, what kind of considerations are you thinking about as they kind of progress back to their sporting activities? Okay, so we'll break it into five phases. So there's the acute phase, like last week, you just blew out your knee. Subacute phase, several weeks go by. You know, you, you're you starting to reincorporate some functional movements. Hopefully by this time, you don't really have a lot of resting pain, but you still have activity pain. So a lot of times, like, I would say that most physical therapists do really well with phase one and two. A lot of times, especially if it's insurance space, this is where that that athlete would be discharged because they could do most regular things, but they're not really ready to go back to sport. Phase three is like getting them back to strength and conditioning. So we want to, you know, cause like a lot of rehab early on is more focused on mechanotherapy of like low loading because the tissue can't handle strong loading, but that phase three is okay. Now we're actually doing strength work, like 70% one RM max. We're getting them back to some conditioning, right? Because if you're injured for a few weeks, there's going to be some level of deconditioning, which means that like, you know, we're always worried about that athlete who's fatigued and they go back to live training. Well, now they're, they're at risk for injury because they're fatigued. That phase four would be like actually doing sports specific movements. And that phase five would be like, okay, well now the athlete's good. Now how do we mitigate future injuries? How do we optimize them? Because that's one thing. I think that like the physical therapists are starting to do nowadays where back in the day it was solely phase one and two, but now you can see these like hybrid physical therapists. Like that's something that I like to think of myself as of how do we optimize this athlete? So this doesn't happen again. So those are the phases. Like I said, I I think most PTs in school are good with phase one and phase two. I don't think the rehab changes too much at that stage. Like, if someone has swelling, they have lack of range of motion, like it doesn't really matter what your sport is. Like you got to address those things. 
So then once it's like phase three, we have to consider the demands of the sport. So like with jujitsu, like there's certain movement milestones I might look at. Like, can someone do a full kneel? Can someone have a full squat? How how are they like a push-up position or like a single arm push-up? Like how are they with stability? Can they rock on their back up and down? So these are movements that have some correlation to sport that are beneficial. When it comes to striking, it's not necessarily the, obviously like a punch or a kick, the mechanics are going to be a little bit faster. So we can, we can work on their mechanics of making sure that they're doing everything correctly from the biomechanical, you know, the ground reaction force to the, the, the twist to impact. But some of that is like a slow introduction to actually like hitting something. And, and this could be like a, a heavy bag. Eventually we could progress to like a partner drill. So now there's some level of unpredictability because like, even if like you're not sparring, like your partner is going to do something else. Right. So, and then we could do some level of like live training. Uh, again, when it comes to, to sparring, it doesn't have to be like, I'm trying to take your head off. Like, there's like touch sparring, like in, uh, in Thailand, a lot of these fighters, they'll fight every weekend. So during the week, they're like, well, why, why spar? Because we fight every weekend. So a lot of their sparring is just touch sparring because they fight so much, they don't want to get beat up. Um, so these are all things you could consider. When it comes to grappling, a lot of times what I'll do is there's something called flow rolling, which is probably similar to flow striking, where you're moving with person, but there's you're not trying to win. You're just kind of like flowing from position. You might get them in like some type of joint lock, but you're not trying to finish. You let them escape. Then we could progress to like positional training. So you'd focus on one aspect. Like it could be I'm fo focusing on my upper body pins. It could be focusing on my escapes. And the reason why we do this is because when you're doing it in these controlled fashions, there's less positional scrambles where there's like these times of uncontrolled chaos per se, that a lot of injuries happen. So like, Kind of like the movement between positions are where a lot of times people get hurt. And then we could just do like full live grappling where you're like, your goal is to, you know, pin your opponent, get them in joint lock and stuff like that. Yeah. I love those progressions that you just laid out, Mike. And I can tell that you certainly have a lot of experience working with this population. And I think it also speaks to the, I'll say that, I, I like how you incorporated the uh, ability of reaction as well. You mentioned partner drills and you kind of broke it up into a progression that not only uh, progresses from a sports specific demand, but also the demands that you mentioned earlier. So having the ability to see what's coming, have the, having the ability to react to what's coming and having the underlying strength to um, absorb whatever force or dispense and whatever force we're uh, referring to there. So I think that's, a very awesome progression on both the striking and the grappling side. Um, and I, I like too how you broke it down on a phased return to sport, including, including getting the athlete back into the sport, because I think that's something that PTs struggle with sometimes is, you know, everyone would be better if we just kept them in PT forever, but that's not possible. We have to get them back at some point. And I think a lot of times PTs neglect the mental side of the athlete too, of they've been out of a sport for however many weeks or months it's been. And the sooner you can get them back in safely, even if it is in a limited capacity, the better off they're going to be as a person and not just, you know, from a injury standpoint. Yeah. You know, I would say martial arts, a lot of like runners, 
where like they identify with their sport like runners are pretty common like they identify with running so they're like they want to run as quick as possible but what component of the activity can we get them to do so they feel like they're moving forward so like psychological readiness getting them back to sport one of the key aspects is that control for me and I think this is obviously why you have to understand the demands of the sport with your athlete, but you want to lay out the plan. Like a lot of times, if let's say the physical therapist doesn't understand the sport, like well, what are they trying to get the athlete to? So if I'm with an athlete, I'm laying down, like this is where you are. You're this acute phase. This is, these are all of the aspects we have to get back to before I say like, you could go back to training this way. They, they know what to expect. And then we could discuss, well, like, well, I don't want you to go back to full training, but maybe you could do these like, partner drills or solo drills so you're doing something maybe you're going to class to watch but now they feel like they're involved in the decision making so now they're going to be more likely to comply with your order like you know what it's like as a pt like you say like don't go back and then the person's like okay and then you like you see them next week like oh yeah i went back and i get hurt again we're like dude i just said don't go back you know they don't listen right right i completely agree and you know that's a conversation that i probably most passionate about with the ACL because out of the injuries that you've mentioned previously from uh, hand injuries to foot injuries to knee injuries I've probably seen the most of the knee and I think with the ACL tear the conversation becomes a matter of you know not necessarily criteria or not necessarily a timeline only based progression but a criterion based progression as well and I would assume that argument can be made for a lot of these other um, types of injuries that we've discussed thus far is there's a timeline element to it tissue needs to heal but ultimately if you're showing that you are ready from a strength standpoint your ratios look good and there's been enough time then I think criterion based progression I, I think that's an area where it kind of speaks a little bit louder I'll say yeah yeah you know it's funny you say that because I will use a lot of of return to sport testing that we use for ACLs, but I'll use it for like pretty much everybody because obviously there's research, you know, below 90% limb symmetry index for a lot of like balance hop test, you're more at risk for an ACL injury, but it's usually a, a good tool to use for any injury, whether it's upper body, lower body, there's some good tests when it comes to uh, some of the upper body stuff, because there's not as many good upper body return to sport testing because a lot of them are like closed kinetic chain, but for grappling, that's great because like we literally do closed kinetic chain stuff. So like push-ups, there's the uh, closed kinetic chain, upper extremity stability test, the upper Y balance test. Like these are all tests that I'll use that I find valuable uh, because again, it just gives us more objective data. Like perfect world, like we would we would do like isometric testing, like for all our patients, but like not every clinic has the, you know, access to isometric testing which I think they're actually becoming much more affordable than they were. Mm -hmm. um, you know, cause like, you know, as a PT, like medial muscle testing, like really doesn't mean much. All it tells me is did it elicit pain? And is there an asymmetry between sides? Like that's really all I know. But like when someone's like a five out of five, like, what does that mean? Like that doesn't mean much. Like the, 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 there's so much bigger or so much of a larger range to know like a five out of five to like, are you actually symmetrical? Yeah. And I, I can't remember who wrote the study right off, but 
there was a study done a few years ago that basically showed with the manual muscle testing, there has to be like a 10 or 15% strength deficit left versus right in order to pick up on the difference between just a four out of five versus a five out of five. So I think that isometric uh, conversation really comes into play there. And I know at the clinic here, we uh, got a Tindec. Now I'm not sponsored by Tindec or anything. I wish we were, um, but it was maybe like 120 bucks roughly. Um, and we've been using that for upper extremity, lower extremity, pretty much any kind of ISO that you can think of. And it gives real-time live data field feedback in pounds or kilograms. And that's been a game changer for us because we can see where someone is on day one and progress over time. But it's also a nice way to monitor how someone's feeling at that session. Um, so people might say they're feeling great and that you check an objective strength measure and they are feeling great and they're stronger as a result. But there might be days when someone's not feeling 100%. And you can use that isometric data to check how strong they are. And maybe their isometric strength is 10% lower that day than it was previously. That doesn't necessarily mean that you as a PT or a rehab professional failed. That means that, hey, you know, they're not able to elicit as much strength in that day at that point in time. And it could be due to other factors. I think that we don't do a good enough job of picking up on things like sleep, nutrition status, hydration, all these other factors that can impact someone's uh, performance that day. And ultimately, you can use that data to adapt your session to how they are in the day instead of how you thought they would be that day. Absolutely. And this is a thing that you talked about hydration. And even though it wasn't quite what you're talking about, it is an important uh, demand to understand for combat athletes is most competitive combat athletes are weight class sport athletes, which means that they have to make weight. Depending on the sport, they might be doing some level of dehydration and then rehydrating before the competition. So we know that dehydrating is going to be a big problem for what brain health, right? Because if your brain's dehydrated, you're going to be more at risk for, you know, you know, brain trauma, concussions. But even like if, if you're going to be, if you're going to be dehydrated, your overall performance is going to be affected. So, that's another thing that's important when you're working with a combat athlete is understand if they're cutting weight, they have to, hopefully, they don't have to cut too much weight, but then they also have to rehydrate properly. Because what they found was that a lot of athletes, is specifically with mixed martial arts, so if you're a pro MMA fighter, you generally have like 24 hours to rehydrate. But still, even with 24 hours, a lot of fighters are still going into that fight dehydrated. They don't realize that. And just as you said, we know that's going to affect performance. Yeah, that's interesting. And you mentioned hydration being a key component of that. And I would imagine nutrition is as yep. well, because I'm sure you've gotten athletes in the clinic before who say, you know, I'm 24 hours into a fast right now and I've got, you know, 12 hours left to go. And your overall capacity to load them that day is probably going to be lower than it would be at other times. Yep, absolutely. Now, outside of the role of weight in the management of that, of the return to sports side, I'll say, say you take a diagnosis like an ACL tear, which is typically a nine to 12 month rehab process. Does the weight still become an issue or a topic of conversation in something like that, where, you know, you know, they're going to lose a little bit of muscle mass initially, some quad atrophy following surgery, 
and then they're going to regain that over time. Is weight still a factor over something that's so drawn out like that? Or is that something that you kind of push to the wayside and then they'll worry about it when they get back into that final return to sport phase? Yeah, I would I would worry about it. I mean, the way that I look weight classes, like there are some athletes that kind of uh indulge. Uh it's becoming less common. Like, you know, um, you know, there's a famous fighter now, Patty the Batty, like he he uh puts on a ton of weight between fights. And so he fights at 155 and he'll weigh over 200 between fights. He gets really fat. Um, actually, funny enough, he just had ankle surgery, so I'm sure he's. this will be a good topic too. But uh, yeah, I mean, like you, you, you don't want to get too outside of your weight class because you do have to get back down. You know, like Conor McGregor, so he had a shit injury over a year ago. And then we don't know how much of it is just him eating and putting on muscle, how much could be like pharmaceuticals that are enhancing that. But he's put on a ton of weight. So typically he fights at lightweight, which is 155. And he's probably over like one, probably over 190 right now. So actually, I think he just signed a fight. So he's planning on fighting Michael Chandler in September-ish. So he's got to consider he's got to make weight. Now, if I'm dealing with an athlete and they have an ACL injury, I'm really not going to worry about their weight until we get them back to, you know, first they want to train because it's, getting back to training and then clearing them to, okay, now you can start your fight camp. So I probably wouldn't worry about the weight until they're getting back to fight camp, you know, because typically you have like eight to 12 weeks to prepare. And on that topic too, I know return to sport considerations, uh, as we talked about before, combine that timeline and criterion based approach. Uh, And typically with ACLs, we usually look to restart that force absorption process somewhere between I'll say week 10 and week 15 uh, on the later side of, you know, post-surgery. So whether that be a box jump progression or snap down, some kind of force absorption, and then progress them back up to sport through a running progression and so on. How does that work on a boxing side from, or I'm sorry, a martial arts side um, when we start considering things like kicking and that sort of thing, would you hold on all kicking until about that tw- uh, nine to 12 month window? Or is there a way to kind of progress in that kicking from a like month four, five, six, as you would a running progression? Yeah. So like, I know with the UFC performance Institute, sometimes like they'll, they'll let people go back to some striking early with like a functional brace. You know, I'm, I'm going to think that most kicks you should be good to to start working with by like month five, month six. Now, you know, we talked about with ACL, the, the important thing, which is why we talk with these athletes, is that ligamentization process where we know that the ACL could take up to two years to regain resilience, even though retail rates kind of plateau around month nine, which is why that's kind of what, what we shoot for, you know. But around month five, month six is when I might clear someone for kicking. I'm actually a little bit more worried for their stance leg than the impact leg, because what you should do if you're kicking is what you do is you, you step and you open your hip and then you whip your hip into the kick. So what happens with like a lot of like Taekwondo athletes is they will pivot on the ball of their foot. So that type of kick, I'm a little bit more worried about because like your foot is moving while your body's rotating versus like in Muay Thai, you open your hip up. So if you, if you kick correctly, you know, like you stop at the target versus like in in in, in Taekwondo, like you're kind of pivoting. That kind of worries me because we know that the the ligament is 
not really ready to handle that stress. But a lot of it's based on the intensity, right? Like, you know, like you could start working on a heavy bag and, you know, you don't have to try to kill the heavy bag. You could just be working on that. So I'd say around month five, month six is a good time to start. And again, if you're worried, adding some type of functional brace might be beneficial. And I'm curious, do you think that conversation on rotational forces would be different if someone who had an ACL reconstruction also had something like an IT band tenodesis performed? Because that's something I'm seeing a lot more of is a ACL reconstruction and an IT band tenodesis or a gracilis ALL. You know, that's interesting. Uh, I don't think it changes a whole lot for what, what I would do with just you know, we want to make sure that that athlete has adequate knee rotation and they've kind of exposed to that uh, while we're getting them back to kick. Interestingly enough, um, I did have one athlete, granted he was like a, a younger kid, he was like 15. So he was like, he was actually ACL repair because uh, I was I was working with a, a surgeon who was starting to do that more. I think he was like six or seven month out. So I'm like, yeah, you go back to hit the heavy bag. And I, I'd watch it in the clinic and he looked good. But he actually somehow tweaked his knee throwing a punch because, again, when you throw a punch, it's a full body movement. So he twisted and his, he had a little bit of knee valgus. Now, granted, his knee didn't – he didn't re-tear the ACL, but it was like a worry. I'm like, oh, my God, like this this kid like hurt himself boxing. I've never heard of anybody like hurt like hurting their ACL in boxing. But it is an important thing you, have to, you do have to consider. As you were talking earlier, too, you mentioned about the role that the hips play in the kick, and I realized that was something we didn't bring up. And, you know, typically when we think martial arts, it is a sport that, you know, anyone can engage in. But I think we typically see or hear about a lot more males doing the sport uh, than females. And males, at least that I've worked with, are are notorious for having very tight hips. Uh, And naturally, if we have a lot of demands a hip mobility for a sport that involves a lot of kicking that can become a problem. Um, so do you have anything that you like to do to help address hip tightness that might be limiting someone from a kicking standpoint, uh, whether that be manual wise or exercise wise? Well, so just so we're on the same page, when it comes to jujitsu, you also need abnormal hip mobility because with jujitsu, you use your legs as weapons, like your leg on your back and you could kind of, you could, you could, uh, isolate their upper body whether it's their arm or their neck and choke them out so in jujitsu an effective guard is a mobile guard so you want really good hip mobility so it's both grappling and striking that need good hip mobility so what i usually do is so i i do a lot of functional range system training so i'll I'll use a lot of hip controlled articular rotations i think uh controlled articular rotations or cars are really good to see how well that joint can move in space. And you can use that to see what aspects they're limiting. For the most part, if, 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 I'm, if I'm working with this athlete, I'm going to assess their hip rotation because the better their hip rotate, the more I know that their, their hip joints limited versus like muscle tissue. So I'm going to address rotation, generally internal more than external. Because external or internal is usually not one that people realize. So a lot of times people have poor internal rotation. They don't realize how important that is for hip mobility. So I could do like various like uh, passive stretches, end range, iso- end range isometrics. And then we could do some type of like mobility drill where we kind of, uh, it would be like kinetic stretching, going kind of like out of, you know, like kind of like mid range and control to end range and kind of go back and forth. From a manual perspective, 
It might be like some type of like hip mobilization. It could be working on some of the muscles like the piriformis, the Jamali brothers, the quadratus, uh, both internus and externus. Uh, they're not super fun to work on, but you know, it's one of those things. And then once I develop adequate hip rotation, that's where I'd start to work more on like the linear motion, like work on like adductor connective tissue work or uh, potentially more hamstring work. But the way when you kick, people don't realize like obviously you want to have you want to have uh, mobile hamstrings. But really, what you could do is if you could lead like I could kick people in the head when, when I was uh, before I was a PT, and I used to have extremely tight hamstrings because what you do is you can like compensate right like every every movement in the body if we could do a compensatory motion. So I I would lead maybe different. You know now I realize that my hips at the time were or my hamstring was tight that I've addressed that, but. You know, these are all the different things you could look at, you know, get them on the table, see where they're lacking and go from there. Yeah, definitely. I love how you bring up the point of movement compensation because it, the body always sacrifices quality for quantity, unfortunately. And um, ultimately, it's always interesting to kind of dive into the cause of a muscular tightness, because I think everyone's been told they have tight hip flexors at some point or the other. Um, but oddly enough, a lot of times I look at people's hip flexors and they're really weak. So, you know, is it necessarily a adaptive shortening from prolonged positions or is it actually a shortening as a response to weakness and lack of training? Um, so I think it's always important to dive into the why behind that. And um, I, I think you hit a, I think you did a great job of hitting so many different muscle groups and movements and uh, there's so many reasons they could be tight. And then at the end of the day, it comes down to, as you mentioned, release and lengthening, followed by appropriate activation and stabilization. Another thing to consider too is a lot of times with striking, you're gonna you're gonna have an asymmetry, just like with a pitcher. Like a pitcher is gonna have more extra rotation on their throwing arm. It's just the nature of the sport. So some striking athletes can be can can fight for both stances from orthodox and southpaw. But a lot really just fo focus on one side. So if you have an athlete who's prim primarily either orthodox or southpaw, you're going to see asymmetries. And some of those asymmetries may be kind of functional, right? It's like if you're working with a sprinter, you're going to see those asymmetries. If you try to correct the asymmetry, you could be affecting performance as well. So it is important to realize that as well. Like you don't always want to be completely symmetrical based on the sport. Yeah, yeah. So basically it's it's not always a left versus right thing sometimes it's a matter of as we mentioned before understanding the demands of the sport what goes into it and then matching your interventions to the demands of the sport yeah and i think it's also important to realize that sports performance and health are not the same thing you know so like from a health perspective we should be symmetrical but from a sports performance standpoint maybe that's not good and it can be kind of hard to do both at the same time. So, you know, again, we got to consider that health and sport performance are two different things. Completely agree. Mike, as we start to wrap this up, this has been a great conversation about so many different considerations relating to martial arts and rehab considerations. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts, closing remarks, or anything that we might have missed uh, discussing? No, I, I think a big thing to understand with like martial arts in general is, martial artists is like they tend to as a group to be like resistant of healthcare. So a lot of times like that's like your biggest battle is just getting them in. Right. Like whether, like I said, like 
pretty much literally every professional martial artist I know does not have health insurance. They like they assume that if they get hurt competing, that that event's going to have medical insurance, which will cover the event. So like back in the day, like a lot of like professional fighters, what they would do is they would go into a fight hurt, knowing that after the fight, they're like, oh, I hurt my shoulder in the fight. Well, it was already hurt. And they use that to cover their health, you know, their their medical care. So that's going to be your biggest hurdle. Like they just don't have access to care. So you have to figure that out. Um, you know, I, I would say that's probably the biggest biggest thing to worry about. Yeah, yeah. And that's a very unique consideration. And unfortunately, I would be willing to bet that there's not really a great answer to that problem at the moment. Yeah. You know, another thing too, for like a lot of like the grappling sports, whether it's wrestling, judo, or jujitsu, these for the most part are amateur sports. Like there are people that can make a little bit of money, but these are athletes that train like full-time athletes, but they're really not making a ton of money. So that's also another problem. Like when it comes to care, like from a finance, it's not like, you know, you see like a football athlete, they make like millions of dollars, like MMA athletes, like they can make some money depending on where they are. But like grappling athletes, like don't like they, they for the most part, they're people with jobs who do this on the side. Yeah, that's interesting. Great points there, Mike. Mike, for people who want to find out more about you and all the amazing stuff that you're doing, where can they find you at? So the best way to see me is going to be on Instagram. So it's my handle, uh, the word doctor underscore kickass. You know, I'll just kind of like use Instagram as like, again, a social media blog, kind of like talking about some of these things that, that are important. Uh, because we discussed this, I am in the process of working on like a continuing education course for physical therapists. Uh, my first one's going to be treating the jujitsu athlete. And then once I finish this, which will hopefully be this month, the next one's going to be on the, working with a striking athlete. But this would be just, you know, a longer, much more time to go into these topics. If you are one of those physical therapists who struggle with working with combat athletes. Yeah, that's great uh, insight and very thankful for you sharing that resource there, Mike. We'll have to uh, link to all of that below there. So if you're listening and you're interested in learning more about any of those considerations, you can check out everything that Mike's doing there. Mike, appreciate your time. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.